With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, one of our favorites, good friend of the program, Sharp, always brings a great point of view. Gabriella Hoffman has returned to Hertel, and boy, howdy, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to talk to her about everything from Vladimir Putin to cheating at fishing. Seriously, Gabby, so great to have you back. How have you been? I've been good. Busy, as you know. I know that's a typical answer I give, but I have been busy but productive and can't complain. Now I get to take a break from travel and get to focus more so on doing commentary and whatnot. But yes, a lot to unpack with you, stemming across a whole wide swath of issue areas. Let's start with Russia. Vladimir Putin, who is celebrating a birthday, or as I call it, one year closer to God straightening him out. Um, <laughs> seriously, though, I, I want to change how we view this for a second, because obviously the war in Ukraine, that's a black and white thing to anybody yes. that's a functional adult. He invaded another country. We talk about the bad stuff. I want to highlight this a little differently, because if you look at the countries that are really bearing the burden on this thing, the Polands, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. They're not just bearing the burden. These are success stories for what happened with countries that got away from the influence of first the old Soviet Union and Vladimir Putin. He's been leaning on all these countries the entire time he's been in power. I think this is an important part of the narrative, especially for people in the West that have freedom of speech, that have free press. We have platforms. We need to be talking about the contrast here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a more productive thing. Of course, we can highlight the bad, but show like, look how much freedom there's been. Look at the innovation. Look at the economic explosion. Places like the Baltic states. Look at how Poland is now leading the way of the European alliance against Russia and Ukraine. Why don't we highlight that stuff? Because that's just as important as the bad stuff. I think because where we are in fighting the culture wars, which is a noble fight, I will definitely say that and i think there are important ones that are to be made and had there but unfortunately when you apply american culture wars to foreign policy in some respects you lose sight of the essence of what is at stake here what freedom means what you know having uh, allied relationships entails and i've noticed a little bit on twitter i don't think so much in real life but i'm a little worried about our compatriots on the right who are tweeting certain things saying that russia is this noble Thing. We can't anger Russia. We can't provoke Russia uh, because they have shared values and identities with us. And I, I want to remind your listeners that Russia was actually the first country uh, to put Marxism into practice, realistically speaking, and, and, and with very bloody consequences. And Putin is not really much of a departure from his Soviet predecessors much. He was KGB and KGB is a relic from the Soviet times and KGB. KGB things of that sort. So he was groomed and ingra ingrained 
in that philosophy. He's not changed. He's not different from what he was when it was the Soviet era in Russia. Now with modern Russia, which is maybe a little more free, but it's not improved. It's it's not where Russia could be. You have these inclinations to neo-Soviet times. Like if I wrote one of my first breakout pieces for townhall.com when I started doing commentary writing on a bigger scale was that Russia still was hearkening back to the past. It was 2013. It was, I think, on the 50th anniversary of Stalin's death. And there was polling conducted among the Russian populace. And take it for what you will, a lot of it is very warped and contorted. But a lot of the Russian populace were very, I would say, wish-casting for Stalin. They missed him. They said he was a positive figure who had positive contributions. And Putin was similarly viewed in the same vein as Stalin. And I know this, as you very well know, and some of your listeners know, because I am of Lithuanian descent. And it's not about me, and it's not about my being Lithuanian, but being a child of immigrants, uh, political refugees who fled the Soviet Union to come to this country, my parents instilled an understanding of the Kremlin. And this is not to say you conflate the Kremlin with all Russian people. I think that's a big mistake. Some people do that. Uh, but unfortunately, much of the Russian populace has not challenged Putin, and a lot of them do agree, unfortunately, with his atrocities. But you you take it from a Baltic perspective or an American perspective by way of like one generation or so from the Baltic states. Lithuania was the first of 15 nations to break away from the Soviet Union. Poland was similarly controlled by the Soviet Union, but they had their own separate dictator premier in charge. But they were not formally part of the 15 countries. Um, Ukraine was part of the 15 occupied bloc that comprised the official Soviet Union. But Poland and Czech Republic and other countries were heavily influenced by the Soviet Union. So a, a clear distinction to make there, but all of them were under the sphere of influence of the USSR. But the Baltics, just because it's in their nature, they did not like being dual, uh, facing dual occupation during both, first they had Soviet, then it went back to, then it went to Nazi occupation, then 50 plus years, nearly 50 plus years of Soviet occupation again. So the Baltic countries haven't really been understood and I think the West turned a blind eye here in the States. We turned a blind eye to their plight. They were, my parents always said they were promised, you know, help from America and America did help a little bit, but they made a lot of concessions to the USSR. And that's a whole nother uh, <laughs> journey to go down to, or a rabbit hole to go down on. But the Baltics are an example of what happens when countries have the aptitude and the fortitude to be independent and to really make success for themselves. The Baltics, not only Lithuania, Lithuania's in my view, I, I I like where it is right now. I don't agree with some of the leadership at times. I may be questioning, you know, their foray into the EU. I think the EU does hamstring them. The Baltics are largely prosperous because they were able to break away. They joined NATO. They are very prosperous. Estonia, I would say even a little bit more technologically speaking, they have Skype, which is a popular mode of communication. People used to record interviews and to host calls. And, and they are just a case study of what happens when you have free markets reintroduced, them being for free markets, them being very anti-communist. Lithuania is one of the most outspoken countries against the CCP and also the Kremlin. Very few countries are very boldly taking stances against the CCP like Lithuania is. They even have jeopardized some of their standing in Europe because they are supporting Taiwan as well. They're not adhering to the one China policy. So that kind of snapshot overview points to the fact that when countries are able to detangle themselves from Russia, on their own volition, which is what Lithuania wanted for the longest time. Same with Estonia and Latvia and Poland and other countries that were influenced by the USSR as well. They can be prosperous and they can be a clarion call, not only to the United States, but also to their Western European neighbors about what not to do. 
Now you see friction between Germany, France, and other Western Western European countries and Eastern European countries about taking moral stances against the CCP, uh, divesting from Russian dependent or dependence on Russian oil and gas. And so we should look to the Baltics as an example. We should align ourselves with them better and similarly adopt that view with Ukraine. Ukraine is not a perfect country. It does have corruption. Russia was able to kind of deceive Ukrainians and say, we're brothers in arms. We're very similar. We like the same food. We kind of talk in similar dialects and languages. But Ukrainians and Russians are totally different people. They're different ethnicities. They have different languages. And Ukraine is a lot older than Russia if we look at establishment and historical uh, evidence of that. So they're two distinct countries. They do sound very similar to the outsider, but they need to be viewed in distinct lenses. And we can criticize the government. I'm worried about funding going to Ukraine being used properly. I think that's a concern for everyone. And I think with respect to Ukraine, people don't want to see war break out. No one, to my knowledge, is calling for American boots on the ground. We were like, Ukraine, this is your battle. We're going to give you guys weapons. We're going to give you guys supplies. We want you to fight. We want you to win. I think that's a good middle ground position without going into full-scale war. But that's kind of an overview of Eastern Europe, kind of from my own understanding of it, talking to people, still having family there. And with respect to the NATO question, if we didn't have NATO, I think, like I said, I think NATO is less controversial than the EU. They're not steeped so much into politics like the EU is, unfortunately. But NATO, if Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia were not in NATO currently, I would have relatives who would be displaced persons right now. <laughs> so that goes to show the strength of NATO, however imperfect of an institution it is. Yeah, I'm about to up to my neck to Ukraine's skirt was too short arguments on, you know, excusing Russia, but that's just me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Something you just touched on in there that's really important, though, is the perceptions of these things. We just had a poll out. 73% of Americans in this poll still believe the U.S. should continue to support Ukraine despite the threats of nuclear weapons. This is one of those Twitter ain't real life pundits aren't yes. all the way connected things sometimes. A friend of mine that I follow on Twitter, Lauren Crow, had a really interesting point on this. He said, interesting that, I'm quoting him here, 30 years after the end of the Cold War, America still seems to intuit, just intuitively know, the optimal response to nuclear threats. I bet this has more to do with many Americans' firsthand experience and distaste with bullying than with our shared understanding of some game theory. But hey, I think he's really on to something here because most people are not ate up on geopolitics. Most people don't even understand things. Most people probably couldn't pick out the Baltic countries on a map or a list no. or anything else. <laughs> They inherently don't like bullies in America. They know right. when a country invades another country or leans on another country. There's just something inherently American where we don't like mm -hmm. that. 
we over talk these things in principles and geopolitics. I think he's onto something there on why the base level American is going to support Ukraine over Vladimir Putin 10 out of 10 times usually. Absolutely. And your friend is correct in that respect, because I think the Cold War is still very fresh in a lot of people's minds, even people around our age. I'm in my early 30s. And for me, I am a descendant of people who escaped that system. And my grandparents had it really, really bad. Uh, they were in various labor camps. My grandpa on my mom's side survived 18 months in a Russian gulag on the Finnish-Russian border. So those horrors are very raw to me. I understand what Russia is capable of, even though I don't hold a foreign policy credential. I'm just very attuned to these issues. I have friends in Eastern Europe. I have friends who deal very deeply in these issues as well. I have one, one of my friends is making the maps that everyone sees from the Institute for the Study of War. My friend George Barros is responsible for putting out those maps. And I lean on him and others who are fully vested in this issue to get information, to extrapolate. And I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. It's a personal thing. You talk to Ukrainians who came here because they either grew up in the last vestiges of, they escaped the last vestiges of the Soviet Union, their parents, their grandparents remember what happened in Ukraine with Russian occupation, with Golodomor, which is one of the worst genocides ever that people, especially in Russia, continue to downplay. And I think it goes back to your friend's point. And it's really interesting to me, kind of separate, but it similarly related. I see a lot of people who call themselves conservative and anti-communist, yet they're rooting for Russia over Ukraine. And that principally strikes me as inconsistent. How can you say you're anti-Marxist and you're championing or you're kind of leaning with or, or you're, you're siding with Russia over Ukraine, not or being ignorant of history about what Russia did to Ukraine, the, the Marxist policies that were imposed there, the genocide, the famine, uh, the, the various uh, imprisonments and, and stint and victim, victimization of individual Ukrainians. It is true that people, even with the influence of Twitter, and I think a lot of people, like I said, they're steeped into culture wars and they're applying what's happening here to the conversation in Ukraine. And they're, I think they're mistaken to do that because this is a totally different issue. And it doesn't mean that uh, you can't care about what happens domestically and not care about what happens abroad. I think some people on the right are falling into the trap that you only can care about one subset of issues or one issue. And we're not made, we're not structured like that as human beings and as political commentators. We can focus on many things. We can address many issues to limit ourselves and to stand idly by and be quiet when Russia is doing this. Just like I said, even from a moral standpoint, it is a lot of cognitive dissidence online, but I am encouraged by polls. I am encouraged by people outside of Twitter because I think Twitter, again, it does lean far to the left, but when it comes to certain elements on the right, Twitter is not a full representation of what Republicans or center-right folks are thinking. You talk to most people and they say, yeah, I do support Ukraine's plight. Is it entirely perfect? No, but I know who's the enemy here. I know who should win here. And we want to see freedom prevail over tyranny. Going back to Ukraine's plight, historically speaking. Now let me see you go. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I think that's an important thing to take away from this when we deal with Vladimir Putin for this reason. He chose to do this. And I think especially in the West, because we have this real level of, look, if you get a right and talk for a living, you're pretty privileged. Let's just be honest about this. The commentary in the news media in the West, especially in America, we lose perspective on these things really quick that, hey, sometimes in history, frequently, you just get a really bad actor that is impervious to logic and reason, and you've got to deal with them because they're going to push until they make you deal with them. And I think too much of this, we try to put our Western spin on it and don't realize, like, for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin did this. He was trying to get a national unification moment. He really does want to put together, not that even the Soviet, the old imperial Russian empire, yeah. what he's really looking to do. His, he's got age. Uh, there's all kinds of rumors about his health situation. Mm-hmm. Whatever triggered this in his mind to make this logically horrible decision, because everybody knew that, like, look, even if you take it, you can't hold it. I don't think we do a really good job in Western punditry and commentary of just acknowledging, like, there's bad faith actors. Peace is the exception. War is the norm historically. And we should prepare ourselves for that thing. I think we're a little spoiled and it shows when we go to deal with things like Vladimir Putin and the really bad actors in the world. Absolutely. And I think people underestimate his influence. People say, well, China's the bigger threat than Russia. And that may be true. I don't deny that. I think China is a huge threat. But people forget that the Kremlin and the CCP are very in sync. They're very much aligned. They have the same goals. And it was because of Soviet Russia that there was a Mao Zedong, that there was the Great Leap Forward. People, again, not knowing history can be your downfall as a commentator. You should have some depth and perception and not look at like, a very small time frame. You need to look big picture. We see this kind of small, isolated, big picture analysis or small picture analysis concentrated not only on foreign policy, you see it on environmental issues. People look at a small scope and then they make their assumptions and their claims through that without looking at the big picture. When you look at the big picture, you could see that Russia has been agitating a lot of the world's adversaries. They've been involved. They've shared ideas. They've trained militarily. They've uh, signed memorandums of understanding. They've they've worked in sync. Russia and China have worked in sync. And we haven't pushed away Russia to fall into the arms of China. They've been working behind the scenes for a very long time. And you can view both of those as threats. Uh, one may be more immediate. The other may be uh, more, ex- you know, more kind of in the periphery, in the background. But you can view, like I said, you can deem problematic. You can, you can deem uh, different um, adversaries as problematic and, and assess what pr- threats they pose. And so that that's kind of short-sighted to say like, well, China's our only threat, but Russia is not. But it's like, well, there wouldn't be a China, like a Marxist China, CCP, without the Soviet Union. People don't know that, or they fail to remember that. And I think that's really important to hone in on. And I, and I would hope people do that. But you can, I've tried to reason with certain people, especially on the right, who are like, oh, no, no, we're just going to do like through this lens, like if you support Ukraine, you're a Bidenite. And like, I disagree with Biden wholeheartedly. I don't support much of his policies, but that doesn't make me supportive of the president. It's just, 
I have I cared about Ukraine long before this this war broke out. And I do get a little peeved by some insincerity of people who do display Ukrainian flags without knowing the context behind it or knowing what the country was before this year. I don't like the virtue signaling on that end either. But I think people have to learn history. If you want to be consistently anti-Marxist, you need to see what Russia did to Ukraine through much of the 20th century. And I would hope that the dialogue does improve, but it doesn't help when we have certain media personalities kind of giving a nod to Russian propaganda at times and, and people just parroting that and saying that if you in any way support Ukraine, that makes you complicit with elites and globalism. It's like, well, I'm questioning of elites. Like, why are you why are you placing this? So again, we kind of have a myopic view of foreign policy. And I think people have this notion of, I was just reading a book um, about um, how social media has kind of made history as a profession um, kind of um, put it, put the profession into question because now everyone does something like, or people lean more so on e-history. So they make their own version of history and the the professionals and those closest to uh, the occupation are not news making much on it. You have other people who are kind of diluting history or uh, making it as their own. And so we need to be cautious about ignoring history creating a narrative for bite-sized digestible consumption and really distorting where public opinion is on this matter. Again, taking out the war equation. Like I said, I don't think many people want to go into war um, given all the problems we have here at home, but we can still morally and militarily support Ukraine without having boots on the ground. Yeah. Gabriella Hoffman joining us. There's that old saying in uh, journalism about journalism supposed to be the first draft of history. I think that's kind of gone by the wayside and it touches on what you're talking about. Uh, put your conservation hat on for just a second. You were writing about lead bans. Uh, yes. Let's go to some domestic policy real quick. Lead in water is a massive problem. We know all the history mm -hmm. on that. We've seen what's happened in municipalities. We've seen it in places like Flint. We've seen other water problems like what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, which is mostly government incompetence, but we'll hash that out later. The lead ban you're talking about is not directly what we're talking about, like lead in, in water or lead right. in paint that kids can get into or asbestos right. or lead in home things. This is a different thing, but it's got the word lead in it. So people kind of freaked out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You kind of turned the noise down on this. You got to the basics of it and you think this is maybe one of those things where <laughs> nomenclature really, really mattered and the way they wrote this in black and white having some major unintended consequences. Right. All the while ignoring the science. So a lot of environmentalists love to conflate pure lead, the toxic lead, like you mentioned, that is found in traces of Flint water in Michigan and elsewhere and in lead paint. These are lead fragments. These are very minuscule in the stream of things. And you're not consuming these lead fragments when you're hunting or fishing. Uh, when, with respect to hunting, as you very well know, and many of your listeners probably will know, when you're hunting, you are largely dealing with a small amount of lead. And when you're field dressing and processing your meat, your deer, whatever, you are taking out those lead fragments to make sure that it doesn't take your meat. And if you get it out within a few hours, you'll be fine. If you let it stay there for days upon end, that may be a whole different story, but hunters are responsible enough to not leave lead in their animal. And I think we can leave it to hunters and anglers to be responsible about their lead usage without government policing their behavior. And what I meant with saying there's a denial of science with respect to lead, I've written extensively about this at Real Clear Policy and also at townhall.com, examining do lead components pose as much of a threat as like consuming pure lead. And I was e able to debunk that very easily because the CDC itself said in its most recent scholarship on this issue, when you account for, let's say, um, I think it's uh, blood levels with respect to lead 
components or containments of lead in in blood blood levels and they they assessed you know uh blood levels with lead fragments in deer versus uh no lead fragments in deer and it was like a statistical null conclusion it was like maybe a 0 0.03 or 0.3 difference very very minuscule it was statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things so their own government agencies have proven that lead fragments when handled not consumed don't pose a threat and there hasn't really been much of studies they've they've pointed to the condor they've pointed to endangered birds and in, ingesting it but that's very limited and the condor has now gotten i would say restored to its its glory it, it's it's recovered it's recovering it's not endangered anymore and they're making a comeback uh, because people are more careful about what they use in the field and also um, not just about hunters and, and anglers using lead components it's also you know what other threats are posed to endangered birds too we have uh, renewable energy that also could be a threat to endangered birds as well um, but they're not painting the full picture they're trying to paint an emotional story isolating it to well you're going to hurt the plight of this condor you're going to hurt the plight of eagles if you continue to use lead and the biden administration leaned on a complaint from a special interest group an environmental organization called the center for biological diversity they're always suing the government to displace conservation stakeholders from the table and what they did here is they said, well, you cannot open up 2 million acres to new hunting and fishing opportunities because lead components, in their view, pure lead, but it's actually lead components, pose the greatest threat to endangered species, to grizzly bears, to snakes, to whatever. And like I said, with, with the findings of blood levels and, and, and the conclusions of it, there, there is no impact thus far. The fishing and hunting interests I've spoken to, I've spoken to trade representatives from the hunting side and also the fishing side, and they have said, unless we're presented new material pointing to the fact that lead usage in fishing and tackle or bullets or ammunition is found to be disproportionately bad, we will reassess and we will stop using this. But they said right now there's no evidence pointing to that. And what it's done, what's done here is rather to incrementally impose bans on hunting and fishing. This is what environmentalists want to do. It sounds very sinister, but having followed their machinations for quite a bit of time, they find these little baby step moves to get the public on their side gradually or to force public behavior to change when it comes to consuming different activities or certain components. So when you eliminate lead tackle and bullets, what is shown to happen in California, no less, of course, California adopted a full ban. Initial findings that or initial studies that went into this prohibition of ban uh, lead tackle and bullets, they estimated that several uh, thousand people would be displaced from the outdoor industry it would lead to potentially 36 to 40% of hunters and anglers not going hunting and fishing because they would be priced out of the activities. And then it ultimately led to a shortage of conservation funding. It has a ripple effect down the, the chain of command. You know, when people stop buying goods, it impacts livelihoods. It leads to fewer conservation dollars being generated. And then it leads to fewer people going outdoors. So people see these restrictions, incremental restrictions as impeding on your lifestyle. And when you do something like this, and the administration in this case went through with it with their new proposal to open 18 new public lands on national wildlife refuges under the Fish and Wildlife Service, that gives the administration permission to potentially ban other forms of hunting, maybe not the accessories, maybe they will say, okay, no grizzly bear management, or okay, no black bear management, even though the science says you have to manage those species, no matter how cuddly or cute they are. So this, this invites incremental abridgments to your ability to hunt and fish. 
um, it's not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, but different state constitutions have right to hunt and fish amendments enshrined in their respective chambers. And so people see this as an attack on their livelihoods, as an attack on these activities. And if you claim to be for public lands access, you shouldn't be making it harder, economically speaking, for people, especially newbies and newbies who are not your traditional hunters and anglers, mostly black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, children, young people, people who've never once picked up a rod or picked up a hunting rifle. They're the ones who are going to be displaced by this. And that's so counterintuitive. And it's very much against the public lands ethos that we have here. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman. Okay, here's a usage of lead that was damaging, but not in the way you normally think of it as. So we got, this went viral. These two yahoos up in Ohio yes. <laughs> uh, that got caught cheating. And the reason the lead comes into it is they were, these are these are called egg, egg sinkers um, for people that don't hunt and fish. It, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just an egg-shaped chunk of lead that you put on a fishing. We use them for tout lining where you want the bait to sit down at the bottom of the lake they use lead sinkers and fish fillets and they were stuffing their fish and cheating. When you found out how these guys got caught though, I love this so much. The suspicions actually arose because number one, these were two guys that went on a hot streak winning, but they were only doing local tournaments. That was number one. But number two is, and the tournament director that caught him said, and this is the quote he said, we thought it was odd. They wanted to take their five fish and go home and not donate it to the helping hands of St. Louis. What they were doing was all the heavy fish. They were donating it to this food charity, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they're not cutting these up. They cut these ones up cause they were cheating. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to take their fish and go home. They actually got caught by the charity aspect of this. Plus the fact they were greedy and kept doing it and they've everybody caught on and they got caught, but not the way you normally see lead, but I know you're a big hunter and fisherman. You like fishing this is kind of humorous in one way. There's a lot of money involved in these things, by the mm -hmm. way. So it is fraud and the police are now involved. I'm sure there'll be charges, but I just want your opinion on it. Cause I know you like the fish about these two yahoos and their lead weight. I thought the fish fillets inside the fish was at least creative. I'd never seen that <laughs> one before, but what do you think of these guys? Before we went on the air, we were talking about the phenomenon of cheating creeping into all these different sports. You look at football, baseball, what have you. Now it's creeping into fishing, which is supposed to be this wholesome activity. You don't think tournament fishing is plagued by all these cheating scandals. Now we can say they have been. And it calls into question, do other people have these practices too? And, and with these two individuals in particular, I suspect they were probably doing nefarious tactics beforehand, uh, maybe in the most recent uh, year. Because how else would you prime yourself for winning so much money? So maybe there are previous records and wins will be called into question too. And it's humorous. I love the memes that are coming out of it. Like you could take some levity from this really bad situation and be like, see, everyone's in agreement that these guys are yahoos, that they should lose their fishing privileges. Some people are like, well, it's too harsh to say they should lose their fishing privileges. But when you violate, you know, the basic standards and, and the conditions you agree to that you would be ethical you would harvest the fish reasonably. You would, in the case that you mentioned, donate the proceeds or donate your earnings or rather donate the fish that you harvested to a local charity. When you violate all those different principles, I think you should face a stiff penalty. It's much like with poaching and hunting. If you violate the rules, ethics, you, you take more than your lot, you're hunting out of season, you're hunting illegally, you need to be made an example of because then it's, it's saying if you get a lenient punishment, then it's saying, okay, your behavior really wasn't that problematic. We'll let you off the hook. You could do this again. So I think these individuals need to, I don't know about a permanent ban. I think they should have, let's say a, a quasi permanent ban. Maybe they can uh, try to work towards good behavior and restore you know trust within the public. But I think they need to face a little bit of a penalty. They need at least five years, 10 years, no tournament fishing, maybe a permanent ban on, on tournament fishing, 
but a temporary penalty on their fishing licenses too, because what poaching may be, what, or what unethical behavior may they be engaged in if they're recreationally fishing? That should call into question, maybe they're doing some really shady behavior when they're not competing in tournaments too. So I think a, a penalty needs to be had. They need to be made an example of because it'll further create discord. I was talking to uh, even female tournament anglers who said, this behavior is not isolated. Sometimes this does happen even more than what's being reported. And it doesn't make and, and boost morale uh, with respect to, to fishing's integrity. And so the memes are great. I think these anglers need to be made an example of have no proximity to tournament angling, pay restitution, pay fines, and to really see the error of their ways and, and to beg for forgiveness because conservation, it's a fish, our, our fish, the wild animals that we pursue, they're a public good. They're meant for us, you know, they're, they're available for us to steward, to enjoy, to harvest in regulated means, not to cheat the system when you're competing in tournaments, not to uh, bloviate, not to obviously in, inflate certain things and conditions. You have to go according to ethics because people will take these examples. I could envision animal rights advocates saying, and any, you know, believe it or not, PETA does go after fishing too. They, they hate cra people eating crabs. They have a really uh, fine hatred of Maryland crab eating. They hate hunters. Absolutely. They also dislike recreational fishing and they say that fish have feelings. Therefore we shouldn't fish. And so they could use this opportunity and say, see, look what they're doing. They're hurting the fish. They're stuffing it with dangerous toxic lead. And they're also stuffing it with fish fillets. So we need to ban tournament fishing. This gives opportunists in environmental interests to seize upon these incidents and to further restrict people. So we need to be careful about how we present ourselves. Exhibit ethical behavior. If you're catching and releasing, showing the release, acknowledging you released, not showing gory pictures, not cheating. Uh, because we have a responsibility to be good examples for these activities, even on a recreational basis. I don't tournament fish, but I, I know a little of the dynamics, but you can apply it consistently recreationally and, and tournament fishing. But um, people have good impressions of these activities. And we need to keep that because the livelihoods are under assault all the time. And this could be used to hurt us. So that's what I think the takeaway from this walleye cheating situation is, I hope. Your listeners agree with that too. <laughs> yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman, I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. People have been lying and cheating about fishing since the first pole went in the water. Right. I'll prove it to you right now. How big was that last fish you caught? That was 45 inches. This big, you know, and you do. Gabrielle Hoffman. <laughs> yeah, you measure it. Uh, Gabriella Hoffman, outstanding stuff. Uh, you've been all over the place. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, the lead band piece was in IWF. We'll link to that. We'll also link to the rest of her work because you're all over the place. You're writing a lot. You're talking a lot till we get you back on her till next time. Let folks know where they can keep up with all that crazy stuff you're doing, even though you're going to be homebound for at least a week or two mm -hmm. now. Yes, I'm excited to stay put here in the Northern Virginia area. But if your listeners wish to connect with me and you've been very generous with teeing up my podcast, I really appreciate that. Listen to District of Conservation. We have Phenomenal guests coming on the pipeline. I've been interviewing a lot of newsmakers. We'll be interviewing a lot of, I think, Virginia department heads. I'm going to talk to our conservation officer and maybe our agriculture cabinet member uh, in the coming months, hopefully some national newsmakers soon. But I'm even talking to people in the field who are not really well known, but have something interesting to say. So District of Conservation on all podcasts played. I'm on social media, easily denoted by blue check marks. You can follow my musings at Young Voices, where Andrew and I have first linked up. Uh, a while ago, but we're both part of the Young Voices Contributor Program. If you're in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, we are actively recruiting 
new contributors for our program. So talk to me if you have an interest in wanting to elevate your commentary or commenting career, media career. We would love to uh, in uh, we would love to have your application come through and, and we would love to welcome your interest to the program as well. I'm also actively writing at townhall.com. I'm a senior fellow with Independent Women's Forum. I have lots of other writings. I have a YouTube channel where I do post my interviews, but I also post like fun travels that I do to national parks, public lands, fishing, hunting, things of that sort. I have a hunting trip coming up, I'm going to be hunting largely with a exclusive group of females in Georgia sometime really soon. So I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to be reviewing some new boots that I received uh, from Irish Setter. So I have some cool stuff. I have like a mix of like political commentary, um, video overviews, and then also product reviews sometime relating to hunting and fishing. So I hope you all connect with me and thank you for hearing me on the program today. Yeah, we uh, actually advertise it because it's that good of a program. Gabriella Hoffman, you're great. See you again soon, my friend. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely chatting with you. Thank you, ma'am. Now let me see you go off like a bomb.